Good morning, everybody. You all are quiet, too. Uh, turn to your neighbor and say, good morning. I'm so glad you're here. My name is blank. I want you to talk to me during my sermon this morning, so I needed to get you warmed up. My name is Ginny. I'm the interim lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and um, I'm really glad to be back with you. It was a nice two weeks off, but I'm, I'm really glad to be back um, with you all this morning, worshiping with you and in the word with you, and it's just good to be together. It's good to hear Micah's voice singing. Um, and have the band with us. It's just great. Uh, so I want to speak to one thing before we launch into the text this morning. Um, coming up soon is our relaunch of neighborhood groups, which is going to happen in the fall, in September. Um, this is the main way that we as a church seek to build community with one another, that we find places to belong to one another. This is like the lifeblood of our church. Uh, we would love it if all of you joined a neighborhood group and were a part of what we were doing through that ministry. In order for that to happen, though, we need leaders. And so I'm here to tell you a little bit about what that looks like and um, help you see that maybe that is you. Um, so we have several different ways of being in leadership in neighborhood groups four different types of leaders. The first is a host. So if you are like nice and have a house or some space and are relatively clean, this could be you. It's a pretty low bar, frankly, um, except for those of us like me who don't really have space. I have space for one baby and one husband <laughs> and sometimes me. Um, but for those of you who do have more space, this is a perfect role for you. You don't have to lead the group. You just have to create the space for people to come um, and be known in your home. For those of you who do like to lead, we have the role of facilitator, which is that more kind of like classic leader that you think about when you think about groups like this. We send out um, the itinerary for the groups every week, so you're not having to come up with content on your own or anything like that. So you'll just get the content, and then you'll lead the group through that um, every week. Another um, type of leader is the communicator. So this is those of you who check your email. Anybody? It's not a lot of you. I can tell you from personal experience. Um, those of you who check your email, those of you who like to be um, in communication with people, who like details, who are administrative, those of you who like those things, this job is for you. You don't have to lead anything. You just are the one who communicates with your group about times and changes and events and things like that. And lastly, we have care coordinators, which I'm really excited about, and this is a new role that we have within neighborhood groups. The care coordinator is the person within the group now who is in charge of sort of facilitating um, care for those in the group who have needs. Now, this may not be all the time, um, but we all go through moments and seasons of life where we need just more care um, than we do at other times. So this person's job is to facilitate that care within the group. So this may be things like helping you move or setting up a meal train for you for whatever reason, or even connecting you with resources such as counseling or financial help through partnership with the church. Uh, care coordinators are the people who administer those things. So um, all of these things are trained for. So if you're like, I'd like to do that, but I don't know like how to actually do that. We have trainings to teach you how to do all those things. Um, so you can come to, to our training if you apply to be a leader, um, and we'll teach you all the things. We would love for you to, um, to join neighborhood groups neighborhood groups in this way. We hope that you do. If you want to sign up, you can go to emmanuelatl.org slash neighbor, and you can fill out an application there. And um, I can't wait to see one from all of you. Amen. 
Uh, Let's read our text today. We're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as uh, many of you have heard me say lots and lots of times, we follow an ancient preaching calendar called the lectionary. And this, for us, lays out the texts that we'll be preaching on throughout the year. And they're a three-year cycle. And each year we work through one of the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the year that we're in right now is called year C. So we're in the year of Luke. So we're really focusing in on his gospel and his um, experience of the person and life of Jesus. Um, It's a long gospel. It's a lot longer than um, the gospel of Mark, for example. It's slow, um, but Luke gets all of those wonderful, juicy details that a lot of the other gospel writers don't get. Um, One of the things I love most about Luke is how eloquent his storytelling is. If you grew up in the church or if you didn't, you've likely heard a lot of stories that are really unique to who Luke is, to his story. Uh, Things like the birth narrative of Jesus when, like, the angels come and visit the shepherds. Um, Stories like the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son. I mean, these are, like, essential stories to what it means to, to know Jesus and to be a Christian. And those come from our brother Luke. The really cool thing that I love about the way that Luke writes, he's like a master storyteller, um, is that we get to see insights into Jesus, like his kind of like inner mind when he makes decisions about things or when the Holy Spirit is the one who's leading him to something. These like small narratives in ways that we, things that we don't get in the other gospels. And this text is no exception. And that's the thing that I really like about it is we're witnessing Jesus' inner life, a decision that he's making for himself, for his life in this moment. What the text tells us is that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. So that's where this, this text begins for us. So what happens here is Jesus, in his heart, there grows sort of a resoluteness and a single-mindedness towards where, not just Jerusalem, but what does Luke mean by he set his face towards Jerusalem? He set his life towards the cross, towards the end of his life, towards what it means to be a person who will be crucified. Now, as a storyteller, Luke is doing an important thing here by telling us that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem because he's doing a really important thing in the narrative, which I think is really interesting. This is sort of a transition point in the gospel. 
So in the first part of the gospel, we have a lot of like really similar stories to the other gospels. Um, stories about feeding the 5,000 and things like that. Stories that are just very common. We all are like, yeah, that's a gospel. Um, then we get to this point, and Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. And we get all these stories that are like very uh, Luke stories that we don't get in the other gospels. Um, Stories like the, the parables of the good Samaritan, the rich fool, the prodigal son, the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, the widow and the unjust judge, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Stories about Mary and Martha. Uh, lots of warnings about greed, those kinds of things. And if you know any of these stories, you know that they're radical. They're making huge statements about how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of this world. They're Jesus attempting to change our minds about the way we think about things, about our enemies, about women, about people on the margins, changing the way we think about money and our possessions, the way we think about even like things like economics and fairness and justice. So for Luke, Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem is his way of marking a moment in Jesus' life where the cross begins to define everything. Obviously, Jesus was always headed towards the cross. This was always the telos of his life. But there's something about this moment. Um, I imagine as Jesus' friend, you know, that there was just something that happened to him. Something that changed in him that made everything about um, more transparent about what it would mean to actually follow him all the way to the cross. And so we get these stories um, that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to look at the first part of this text and, and imagine, okay, so Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, headed towards the cross, and he does this first really interesting act with his disciples. This first very interesting thing happens. And he's explaining what it looks like to have a life that's defined by the cross. What it means to live in the kingdom of God is entirely different from what it means to live in the kingdom of this world. And then we have this second part of the text about the cost of following Jesus. And lastly, I just want to say a few things about the faithfulness of God and the life and death of Jesus, how grateful I am that Jesus made the decision to set his face towards Jerusalem and then followed it all the way to the end. So what it means to be a part of God's kingdom first. So as I said a moment ago, in this section of Luke, we have all these stories that change the way we understand how to be a human in society when we are a human who lives within the kingdom of God. In this very first moment of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, something I think really interesting happens. They come to this Samaritan village, and he's rejected almost immediately. Um, and why is he rejected? Because his face is set towards Jerusalem. Now, what does that even mean? We have to remember when we come to stories about Samaritans that they were essentially enemies of the Jewish people. They had their own... Um, holy place, which was Mount Gerizim. It was not Jerusalem. So if they made pilgrimages, it was there, not to Jerusalem. So Jesus having his face set towards Jerusalem to them was offensive, right? Um, part of this is obvious. Jesus is a Jewish person coming into Samaritan land. It shouldn't be surprising that Jesus um, is a person who loves Jerusalem and is perhaps even headed there. should not be surprising to any of the Samaritans. Um, and yet, it is a really important moment to say they had the choice to receive him or not, and they chose not to. So, then what happens? James and John come to Jesus' rescue and offer a very normal thing. Um, to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them. 
And what's funny to me is like, that's an absurd thing to say anyways, right? That's just funny. Um, But secondly is like, they've been following Jesus for a while now. And he's done nothing close to what this looks like. So like, where in God's name did they get this idea that like, this is our time. Um, This is the time to call fire down. The not funny part, I think, about this moment in the text is that this is a very uh, stark image to me of what revenge does in us. What the desire for revenge can do in us, what it can inspire in us. It inspires all kinds of desires and ideas, things we could even put on God that are not God's at all. But what Jesus shows us in his response is that being a part of the kingdom of God means being inspired by something altogether different. Having the cross before our eyes changes the way we think about ourselves and our enemies and the way that we live and exist in the world. What Jesus shows is at the center of God's kingdom, at the center of what he did on the cross, of what it enacted in the world is justice and mercy. And for the disciples, the answer to rejection is rather vengeance and retribution. And so that's what they call down out of heaven. What Jesus shows them here is that in the kingdom of God, we can face, we can face rejection and misunderstanding with confidence and even with love and mercy. Let me just tell you what Jesus does that I think is the most fascinating thing about this portion of Luke. Jesus is fully rejected by the Samaritan people, right? He leaves. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't call down fire from heaven. He walks away. What happens in chapter 10 is fascinating to me. So we're like just a few verses later. Jesus tells the story about a man who is an exemplary neighbor. He shows God's people who are supposed to be the best at loving their neighbor how to actually do it. Where's that man from? Samaria. He's a Samaritan. So Jesus is rejected by these people and then tells the story about them as the hero, um, as the person who is able to show the world how best to love their neighbor, which is the, one of the great commandments of the people of God. The very first thing that happens to Jesus when he sets his face towards Jerusalem is that Jesus refuses to call someone an enemy that the world would call an enemy. Someone who acts like an enemy, Jesus says, you cannot choose that for me. I get to choose who you are for me. I have a friend who is one of the most faithful and peaceful people that I know. She's been my friend for a long time. And um, I look up to her in many ways. And she recently had to leave a job of 10 years that, you know, was really good and lovely for a long time. And things kind of like fell apart towards the end. And um, she was a real voice of discernment and truth, honesty in, in, in the situation that she was in. And it was kind of rejected overall. And so she made this like integrity decision to walk away from this job, this, this place. And, um, and it was a really brave decision because she didn't have to go. Um, and it was um, a job where it, she was earning two-thirds of their family income. So she made the very brave, you know, like social decision to leave, but also financial decision to leave. And I met with her for the first time this week um, since all of that kind of happened. And I 
wanted to like mama bear the situation, you know what I mean? Be like, tell me everything. Like, who do I need to go punch? Um, is kind of how I felt walking into the meeting. And sitting across from someone who will not make enemies out of their enemies, I cannot tell you, like, that is like being close to the heart of Christ is what it felt like. The peace that was just in her spirit, the way she was able to talk about people with love and discernment, to really talk about injustice, but also to be able to speak to the reality that they are people that God loves and that there is even maybe good in them. I I read a a theologian speak to this text this week and, and they said, Jesus deals with rejection by absorbing and disarming it not by returning it in kind. And when we say things like love your enemies, it feels very sort of like spiritual and like out in the universe. It feels really hard to understand what that could mean for you and me. But this quote kind of like says exactly what I imagine it's like to watch Jesus in this moment. To like absorb this rejection, this evil, this darkness, this way of living and disarm it in himself because he is filled with the spirit of God and then push it back into the world as something entirely different, as like a resurrected thing, as a loving thing, to say, I am not going to make an enemy out of my enemies. That's a Christian way to live. That's what it's like to be near Christ. He will not sit down with you and wait to hear about all the people that he wants to punch in the face for you. That's not who he is. Sometimes we want him to be that. What he will do when you sit down with him is he will talk about the good, he will call out the injustice, and he will call you then to absorbing it and turning into something that can go out into the world and look more like him. Outrage being our our default against some things occasionally is just fine. Things like we talked about today, gun violence, racism, oppression, inequality, even Jesus turned over tables, you know. But outrage cannot be our default as Christians. It's my default right now, and I don't like it about myself. I need to spend time with that heart of Jesus that looked at his disciples who, was call, who were calling fire down from heaven, and he just kind of like, he's like, no, not that. <laughs> you know? And say, let me show you how to do this differently. That's who Jesus is. That's what his kingdom is like. It's what it meant for him to set his face towards the cross and to show us what that looks like in the world. So the second part of this text is about the cost of following Jesus. He redefines what it means to be human when we enter the kingdom of God. And then he's really transparent with us about what it will most certainly cost us. About the cost of discipleship, of following him to the cross. The second part of this text is hard. I don't love to read it like in my devotional time, and I certainly don't like to sit down to my computer and have to like talk about it with you all. <laughs> it's not like a fun thing to, to talk about, to think about, of Jesus saying, this is exactly how hard this is going to be. And yet it's real. It's scripture. It's true. It's good to say out loud. It's good to read. It's good to talk about. Jesus is telling us through these stories, which the title of this section is The Would-Be Followers of Jesus, which is just rude, I think. Um, Your section titles are not in the original scripture, so if you ever just want to not look at them, you're welcome to do that. Um, Jesus tells us these stories about these followers or non-followers, that if we decide to follow him, that we at times 
will not have the comforts we feel we deserve or need. That in fact, as Christians, we might expect that that's the case more often than not. That we will at times go against the grain of cultural norms and risk being understood. Again, that that might be what we should expect rather than be surprised by it. And that we will at times have to let go of the things that we hold most dear. These are costly things. And they really happen when we decide to follow Jesus. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he is no guru, you know. He makes no illusions about what it will mean to follow him. He's not like a feel-good guy. Um, he's honest. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. Jesus himself says, you must take up your cross and follow me. But here's what's also true of Jesus. And let me just tell you, I wrote a whole other sermon this week. I spent too much time writing sermons this week. I wrote a whole other sermon about the cost of discipleship because that's what this really felt like to me. And I know that we're all having trouble and like I need like a reset, you know, it's like we all feel that way. I even wrote like an inventory for us all to like do together and then take home and just be more Christian at the end of it. And, um, and then I woke up on Friday morning and Jesus was like, that wasn't it. Um, because, not because the cost of discipleship is not worth talking about, that it's not worth spending time on, that it's not worth preaching about, you know. But from my own life, from meeting with you all, from doing the very, like, job that I get to have, the gift that it is, I know that you all are feeling the cost maybe more than you've ever felt in your life. And that may mean we're privileged, and it, I know that it does. And yet it's real. That feeling is real for a lot of us. Not just the cost of being Christian, but just the cost of being alive, being a human, and watching things that are very uncertain and very dark happen around us. And so the thing that I think Jesus really wanted me to say today um, is that Jesus is very honest about what it means to follow him. But what is also true of Jesus is that he calls us to follow him because he believes that we can Despite all of our failures, despite our sinfulness, Jesus really truly believes that we can be like him, which is an absurd thought if you're like connected to yourself at all or to your sinfulness. If you confess ever, you're like, it's impossible that I could be like Jesus. Jesus believes it for us. He believes it first and foremost about us. And not only that, friends, here's the even better news is that Jesus is praying for us. Did you know that? Anybody? That Jesus is praying for you? I remember being in a, a, a part of my life where I um, wasn't really connected to the church and my family's not Christian and the mentor I had for a really long time was kind of had gone off the deep end and, um, and all my friends had left church and I remember sitting and sitting in church one Sunday in the chair, you know, section all by myself and thinking no one is praying for me. And what a terrifying thought that was. And then remembering this verse from Hebrews 7 that says the resurrected Jesus lives right now, lives and breathes. He lives to intercede for us. That's what Jesus is doing, living the most interesting life that you can live as a resurrected person, sitting at the right hand of God and pleading on our behalf, praying for us. That's what he's doing right now. So when he calls us to be followers of him, to follow him all the way to the cross, he believes we can, not just because the Holy Spirit is good, but because Jesus is praying that we will. 
And when Jesus prays things, things change. One of my favorite scriptures that also comes from the Gospel of Luke, that for me has been really life-defining, is in the middle of the Last Supper when Jesus is saying all the things and he predicts Peter's denial, which how horrifying a thing if you're Peter, you know, um, for him to predict it and then it to happen and how, like, what, what a ding-dong. And um, my worst nightmare. And so... Jesus is saying, you know, this is going to happen. And this is, but this is what he says to Peter. He calls him Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned back, may strengthen your brothers. What an incredible scripture. The reason this scripture even came to mind is because this idea of Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, that sort of strength and resoluteness he finds, that is the same strength and resoluteness, that word, that Greek word that Jesus is talking about here, that you will, even if you fail, turn back because Jesus is praying for you, turn back, regain your faith with strength to set your face towards Jerusalem and strengthen the people around you. That's what happens when Jesus prays for us. So while the cost of discipleship is great, it's everything. It's more than you maybe you're willing to even give right now or even contemplate. Jesus believes that you can, and he's praying that you will. And that is really good news. So here's um, what's also really good news about this text. I love, um, as a friend of Jesus, this text makes me like, and most, a lot of Luke does too, makes me feel that sort of friendship. When I hear about his internal world and the decisions that he makes, it feels like I'm reading about my friend, you know? And when I hear that Jesus made this decision to set his face towards Jerusalem, it's like learning this really intimate detail about a friend of mine, um, their journey on a path to making a difficult decision. And so what I love about it is hearing this this internal motivation for Jesus and then knowing the end of the story, that Jesus' yes in this moment is what leads us to the fulfillment of all the promises of God. That everything you read about in the Old Testament, all the stories, all the covenants, they all find their place, their fulfillment in Jesus going actually in the end to the cross. The covenant with Noah that God will never again destroy the world, but instead the rainbow, the the war weapon, the bow, points at the heart of God now instead at the world. The story, the covenant of Abraham in Genesis where the spirit of God passes through the sacrifices, which normally it would be, you know, the human or the weaker party that would pass through the sacrifices. Instead, the spirit of God passes through symbolizing that when your people fail, Abraham, it will be on me to sacrifice, to take it upon myself Um, so that your people can actually be a blessing to the world. The covenant with David in 2 Samuel, when David wants to build a house, a temple, and God sort of laughs at him like, I don't need a house. I made it all the way here without a house. You do need a house. And his name is Jesus, and I'm going to build it for you. I'm going to send my son, and he's going to make it so that my reign um, comes to earth and lasts forever. And all the rest of the stories, all the ways that God has moved toward his people in faithfulness over and over and over again in the Old Testament, those things find their yes in Jesus. God, in the Old Testament, call him Yahweh, was known not just by God's people, but by the nations that lived around God's people 
as a god of something in Hebrew called hesed, which means uh, covenant loyalty. But not just like we signed a contract and I'm legally bound to you now. In your Bible, if you read that word translated, it probably says something more like steadfast love. And that's because it's a really hard word to define. But what it's like is like the love of a parent with a child. That there is nothing you can do that can make me not love you. It's, we are bound in a way that is like a contract, but stronger than that. Um, that we are bound by something deep within us, by our blood and by our spirits. And there's nothing you can do that can make me not love you. That's the kind of love Yahweh had for his people and is now extending to the world through Jesus. Second Corinthians tells us, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For in him every one of God's promises is a yes. For this reason it is through him that we say the amen to the glory of God. Jesus is the human participation of God's faithfulness. Jesus is the trustworthiness of God embodied, died, resurrected, living to intercede on your behalf. So what you see in this text is Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem it's God's son, God made flesh, just like you and me, making this decision to step forward in his vocation to move towards the cross, proceeding to define what it means to live in light of the cross, inviting us to follow him in his suffering so that we can share in his life, in himself. You and I are standing or sitting here today, worshiping him, because one day Jesus decided in his faithfulness that he would set his face towards Jerusalem and he would complete that mission to the end. When I was in college, um, dark days. <laughs> Anybody else? Some people had a nice time, not me. Um, I was sort of in the midst of the like deconstruction world, but also like some like very real depression and it was just a very hard time. And I took a break from being a Christian a very short break, because um, I didn't know how to think about God anymore. And I, um, God kind of brought me back into the fold through a very, like, mysterious moment on I-20 at late at night in my 2000 Honda Accord. Amen? And um, I felt this, like, call back into who God was, but I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know who God was anymore. So I decided I'd write a list of things that I knew that were true. Um, okay, I don't know anything, but like, can I, do I know one thing or two things or three things? For a long time, there was one thing on the list. I know the list got longer, but I don't, I don't remember what it, what it is. Um, wish I had it. But the thing that was on the list for a very long time is the only thing that I knew that was true was Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Basically, God always finishes what he starts. And that for me was enough to like bring me back into the fold of God. Enough for me to say like, okay, if God is a person who finishes what he starts, then that is really trustworthy. And I can actually trust the God of the universe because God says yes when he gives his promises. He gives them to the end. It's still one of the truest things I know about God. It's the thing that like gets me through the doors every week. It's the thing that gets me up in the morning to pray is knowing that what God has started in me, even though it feels so, the end feels so far of who God wants me to be, he will finish that work. That's true of me and that is true of you. 
It's true of the world. God doesn't start things he doesn't finish. It's the thing I pray over. Um, you know, my brother in high school, he's such a science nerd. Um, he asked me for a Bible. He's not a Christian. He asked me for a Bible. And um, I was like, sure. And he, like, read through the Pentateuch, like, the first five books of the Bible. And he was like, this is not for me. And understandable, right? And, um, and ever since then, my prayer for him for years and years has been, like, God started something in him. And God will finish that thing in him. And that's true of him and it's true of all of us in this room. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And he finished what he started. Thanks be to God. And as St. Paul said, for this reason, it is through him that we say the amen to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.